All right. Well, I guess I can tr- start to try to be somewhat professional at this, even though I'm not getting paid yet. I can speak a prophecy. Um, why start now? Why, right. <laughs> um, this is Collective Journal on the week of Monday, August 17th. 7th. Thank you. I have help. Uh, the week of Monday, August 17th. Uh, like I said, this is another episode of Collective Journal. I am one of your humble hosts, Maurice Adkins. And um, today with me, I, I have a very important person. He's kind of a big deal. Uh, pastor, mentor, friend, Marine, Lego enthusiast, uh, Chris Allen. Hello. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, today uh, m- me and Chris are just going to have a chat about some things. And uh, I feel like I'm in trouble. Like I'm at the principal's office. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have a chat, Mr. Allen. No. <laughs> the the student becomes the teacher. Mm. <laughs> No, um, but yeah, so in large part, just to give you guys a little behind the scene, you know, inside baseball here for a second, uh, there, there was a period of time in recent history before the world started burning um, that, you know, Chris and I would um, just ride around Kansas City in a white van. And we weren't creepers or, or anything like that. It wasn't like that. We were teaching, um, you know... Um, so what you're saying is we wouldn't go to... Ride around in our big white van to go find our large group of teenagers and talk to them about sex. Is that what you're saying? We weren't we weren't doing that. I I, I think that's a misrepresentation <laughs> of the truth. Uh, <laughs> I think we're leaving out some key details. So so Chris and I worked for an organization that went into inner city Kansas City schools and taught um, basically abstinence programs. Um, but we taught them just some life skills. You know how how to set goals and and I was introduced to to lifeguard youth development through by Chris. Uh, on a lesson on empathy, um, they wanted to kind of spur on conversations on how to, how to get the kids involved with community service projects. Is that right? Yes. And so uh, there was a lesson on empathy to see what needs or how could the students best serve their community. Um, and so we had a lesson on empathy. And so he happened to know a blind guy um, with a disability. And so they, they brought me in for that. And then ever since... Not ever since then, necessarily, but that turned into a more uh, regular thing. I would just go and co-facilitate these talks with these young people out here, uh, seventh and ninth graders to be specific, and and we would just ride around and just going from school to school, class to class, and things, and we would just sit in the van and eat and talk about stuff. And we're like, our common phrase was, we really ought to be writing this down. <laughs> and so... Uh, we, we flirted with the ideas for six years now? Something like that. To have our own show, our own radio show. And we were talking about it the other day. And it was just, it, it, it kind of took us back, like, never really gave it a thought A thought as to um, why would we do something like that? <laughs> or, go ahead. Yeah, I'm just the, you know, I, I'm not really, I'm not really a pessimist. Although sometimes <laughs> I feel like I have to defend that statement because... I do notice a lot of things that are wrong with stuff and people and things and oh, and but at the same time I'm I'm you know I try to stay optimistic about the possibility of future. Yeah, I, I try to consider myself more of a realist. Yeah, instead of a pessimist, where mm. I just or a pragmatist, I guess it's just this is just how it is. It's mm. not you know I try not to associate positive or negative value, but if you ask me to do something and I tell you 75 reasons why we, why it can't be done the way you want it to be done, uh-huh. it's not because I'm negative. 
it's just because I recognize that you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> or, or I just have, happen to have some level of expertise or experience in that particular thing and, and know that, well, it can be done. But, you know, it, it's like I saw, I shared with Therese the other day that it's like building the pyramids. You'd be surprised what you can get done with uh, an unlimited budget and an inexhaustible supply of forced labor. I yeah. mean, yeah. You, can, you can get pyramids built. Sure, but sure, yeah. And so, is it, with that line of thought, does that apply to even starting our own show or a podcast or something like that, where you're just kind of like this pragmatist realist, to where it's like, well, Reese, that's that's a really lovely thought, um, but I'm going to give you 75 reasons why, why I don't think this. Well, th- or, or at least things that you should consider before well, you start into something like this. You know, uh, again, it, it just falls back to why. You know, why are we doing this? What is the what's the point? And, sure. You know, and so I listen to the radio. I listen to talk shows. I listen to you know. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, um, but you know, just for simple entertainment value, and, and you know, so so that people can kind of see sometimes behind the curtain of how you know how somebody else's brain works or what you know. Sure. So. Yeah, I obviously recognize there's value in it because there's 14 million podcasts you can listen to from a, from any topic anywhere. It's kind of like TED Talks. You can find one about whatever topic you're interested in, and, mm-hmm. and because they're just it's fascinating. And people are just right now in our culture, they're just fascinated with what everybody else is doing. Yeah. So and and no, it's it's it, I, I found it to be a good medium for me because um, you know I'm interested in what's going on in the world, with, you know, current events, you know, everything like that. Um, you know, and after I lost my sight, you know, I just can't pick up a magazine like I don't know. I, I wasn't a newspaper guy, but I was very much a magazine person, you know, reading double XL and with, it's a hip hop magazine. I'm familiar. Oh, OK. <laughs> and so uh, it just, re- you know, stuff like that is, you know, so podcast is a good medium for me because I can just listen to people talk about stuff. It was great. I was like watching TV. It's free TV. <laughs> I could just, you know, listen to whatever, whatever I wanted to. And it's also, you know, there, there's there's a thing in our modern society and culture called uh, YouTube scholars. Hmm. I'm very, very sure that there's podcast scholars too. I would pr- profess myself to probably be one of them. And so, no, it's this thing about like when you're a grown up, you know, in, in school, they used to tell you, you know, uh, stay in school, don't do drugs. To me, like I just recently dawned on me, like there's, there's something underneath that. Like, I think the thing to take away from that is like, don't ever stop learning and don't, put anything in place that would prohibit you from doing so yeah uh, you know and so podcast for me has been something that i'm like okay I, it's like school but i get to pick i don't have to do all the stuff i'm not interested in like i don't need to know the pythagorean <laughs> theorem you know i just it's not you know we, we talk with that we talk about that with our pivot people um you know i just you're not gonna use a squared plus b squared equals c squared it's just it's not a thing strangely i have but you know that's just depending on You're some of the ex- things that you do. This is, <laughs> as you guys will come to hear in this conversation, probably Chris is the exception, not the rule, um, in so many other regards. Um, I am exceptional. Thank you. You are. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. If, if nothing else, Chris, and modest. The, the purpose <laughs> in your humble but accurate My opinion. humble but accurate opinion. <laughs> Uh, I just lost what I was going to say. Thank you. No, the purpose of this, you were talking about why would we do something like this. If anything else, guys, to me, for those of you who know the people, individuals that are on this podcast right now, you know us and you know our relationship and stuff. You talk about why would we do something like this. If, if nothing else, this podcast episode at least will serve as, as, as me giving you your roses <laughs> while, while you can still smell them. There you go. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's what this is today. So, um, 
for may, maybe those of uh, the listeners who don't know, or maybe would like to know a little bit more, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, wow. Your story. Uh, My story. Your ep- a little bit. Yeah. Um, the, the, some of the highlights. Uh, I was born... <laughs> When my dad was about uh, three or four months away from graduating from Bible college in Springfield, Missouri, Baptist Bible College, um, and so I have that has sculpted my whole life. Is you know he he became a pastor. He was already pastoring there while he was in school, um, assistant pastor, that kind of thing. Um, and so I grad I was born in February. He graduated in May. Within a couple of weeks, we were moving from Springfield back to uh, right around Raleigh, North Carolina where both my parents are from in that area, uh, just east of Raleigh. Um, so we've got some southern roots, but I was actually born in Missouri. Um, thank, lived, you, thank you for appropriately pronouncing Missouri. Yeah, oh yeah. It's not, uh, it's not it's Missouri. Not Missouri. Yeah, no, there's an I at the end. Uh, and it is just officially pecan. I'm just going to say that now. <laughs> um, but uh, within a, a year or so, I think, we, we uh, Dad got a job at a, a larger church in Florence, South Carolina. Um, I don't remember living in North Carolina when I was a baby because I was less than a year old. Um, but uh, we lived in South Carolina there in Florence until I was um, almost eight. Um, and so we moved to Kansas City. Um, I think we left South Carolina on July on January 1st. Um, and I turned eight in February of that same year. So Such was, a pivotal age, eight. Yeah. We'll get into that later. Um, yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> it was awful um, because... It was all I had ever known, and I'm eight, you know, and so I'm comfortable in the South and Southern accent, and and Wait, just you, everything you had was a, slow. Sorry, and, pause. You had a you had a Southern accent. Oh yeah. Oh god, I missed this. But it was a cute seven year old Southern accent oh, too. Yeah. Yeah, because that was because everything was just like I was like I was living in a bowl of molasses because everything was just so much slower. Right. Um, that to draw. The, to the point, yeah, to the point where when we got to, to Kansas City, I was in the second grade and actually had to stay after school some with my second grade teacher um, to learn phonics and to learn different things because they were using a different type of curriculum in, in South Carolina. And so mm-hmm. I, had to, I had to learn how to catch up, but I also had to learn how to deliver information more rapidly because I was wasting too much class time by trying to simply speak one sentence. Um, so just just for example, my it would if I was having a conversation with my second grade teacher um, back in 1981, um, it would have sounded probably something like, "Excuse me, Mrs. Hem Street, I need to go to the bathroom." And so everything was just very slow, mm-hmm. very methodical, very deliberate, but with a with a big hit southern draw. And um, but I had to learn. Whereas right now you're more like Will Smith as Hancock, and you're like, you got a toilet? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know. But all uh, you know. But of course, over time, I mean, I grew up from since then. I've, I've lost. The majority of my southern accent. Mm-hmm. I mean, pecan's probably the one last holdout, honestly. <laughs> um, but the church, that I went, die, the church that I went to in South Carolina had, had, uh, and it's South Carolina, not South Carolina. Or is it Carolina? Uh, it's not, well, that's North Carolina. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's just weird because 
it, the church that we went to had had eight or ten big giant pecan trees in the front yard, mm-hmm. and we would go out there at, at pecan season, whenever that was. I don't even remember because I was seven. Right. With just bushel baskets and just pick up pecans off the ground, and, and you could just crack them open and eat them just right there, raw, right out of right off the tree. And so it was. Which, for the record, is something that I've never done in my life. I've never been like in nature and just ate something from the soil. I, not, not an experience I've, I've had. But you did have some of those that day at your house where your wife was picking those berries outside. I did. The tree, the mulberries. I don't recall eating any of that. I thought you did. I thought you tasted them. Negative. Maybe not. Negative. But um, literally the action of picking something off uh, of a tree or a bush. And, and just putting it in your face. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Uh, my aunt in North Carolina had a fig tree that was just huge too and it had fresh figs on it and you could just go out and pick a fig. Like figs and fig newtons? Yeah. It's a fruit. Like Jesus did that. Uh-huh. I'd love to do that. Um, but they, I mean, these figs were gigantic. They're like plums almost, but they're, they're like teardrop shape, okay. which is weird um, because they grow from one end um, and they just kind of have a bulbous end on the other side and, you know, huh. you just pop them off and just pop them right in your mouth and just eat them. They're just wonderful. I don't like fig newtons, but the, those figs were great. I would love to. I love fig newtons, so I'd love to try yeah. them. Um, so then, so we ended up in, in Kansas City, a little, little house in Raytown. Um, well, I guess technically it was in Kansas City. It was about 400 feet from the Raytown city line. But, right. Uh, um, and uh, went to a little Christian school. Had gone to a Christian school with a church in South Carolina. Um, was going to the Kansas City Baptist Temple here. Um, it was the Florence Baptist Temple in, in South Carolina. I ended up going to the Lee Summit Baptist Temple. So it's, it was kind of a trend mm. uh, to go to Baptist temples. And still, to this day, I'm not convinced why they were called that but that's for sure. another, another podcast I'm sure possibly um, went uh, moved to a little house in Lee Summit um, which at the time it was kind of an oddball because the city limit was Lee Summit the school district was Blue Springs but the prefix on our telephone our home phone area code was Independence so the, the first three numbers of our phone number so I didn't really have a is that how you went to Blue Springs High School? yeah so just because it was over in Woods Chapel Acres, just kind of, ah. just kind of off. Not, I mean, the people that lived behind us were lived in Lakewood, but we didn't live in Lakewood because we didn't rate. So we lived, <laughs> we lived in Woods Chapel Acres. But uh, uh, most of the folks that, I mean, the folks that lived right behind it, we shared a back fence with, went to Lee Summit High School. Interesting. Um, and so, um, grew up there, graduated, uh, didn't do anything too spectacular. Was on the yearbook staff as a senior. That's probably the most exciting thing I did in high school. I didn't play sports. I didn't. Uh, I guess I was in the National Forensics League one year because I took debate and <laughs> never won one. Um, and but just got enough points to be a part of the NFL. The, and so yes. I, just, I just found my card the other day, actually, in my desk. <laughs> um, and um, got out of high school. Went to Longview for a year and a half. I was working at the church as a janitor. Um, Dad started the church, Lee Summit Baptist Temple, the, the first Sunday in May uh, before I graduated, mm-hmm. uh, the third Sunday in May. And so my graduation party was very poorly attended from anybody I ever knew before because they were all part of a different church at that point, mm-hmm. uh, which was um, tough for me, but uh, at least I'm not bitter. Uh, <laughs> um, started dating um, and... Well, wait, you, so you, but you graduated though. I graduated, yeah. You had, did you have a graduation ceremony? Yeah, went to, yeah, huh? big. I mean, went to the whole big giant thing downtown Kansas City. Did you go to prom? Was went to prom. Actually, my senior year, I went to two different proms with two different girls. <laughs> Look at you! Um, Look at you out here, Chris one, Allen. One of I didn't my, go. To, didn't go to either of mine. One of my own. I didn't go to my junior prom, but I did. I did. I was asked to attend with with uh, a young lady uh, who just 
she was just a really, really close friend, and it was it was an honor to be able to go with her and and, and be her date that night. Sure. Um, and then had just already asked another young lady to go with me to mine, mm-hmm. um, and so it was just a. I, there was no necessarily romantic attraction to either one of these people. It was sure. just somebody to go to a prom with. Yeah. Um, my that year, I went to my homecoming dance with a different girl from those two. Mm. Um, and all three of those instances, that was the only time I ever went out with any of those three girls was that one time to a, to a school function. Sorry. Um, I could count on one hand the number of girls that I would say I ever had a relationship with where I would consider them my girlfriend. Sure. Um, the numbers of that even go down, I think, when I could consider the girls that I kissed. Sure. Um... So started dating a young lady, and we were starting to get serious, and I was 18, out of high school, living in my parents' house, going to Longview with no real drive. I was a very sensitive kid, um, you know, even to the point of my parents at one point in time signed me up for Greenpeace because I was on this Save the Whales kick when I was a kid. All right. Um, which is interesting because when I was trying to join the Marine Corps, <laughs> uh, that came up because I had a membership, and it, I got flagged as... You know, a potential risk because I was a part of this agency, this organization. I'm like, dude, I was like nine, and my parents got me this because I was trying to save some whales. You know, from from Missouri, I was trying to save whales from Missouri as a as a nine. I actually went around my neighborhood and stuff trying to get people to sign a position, a petition to make whaling illegal, not realizing that it was <laughs> right already illegal. Um, yeah, and uh, so. Uh, so that's interesting. Let me let me peer into that a little bit. Yeah, dig into that. And then, feel free. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so like you had kind of like this very like uh, you said Greenpeace. Uh huh. Explain to me like what what Greenpeace is a little bit. Oh wow. If you, I mean, just elevator. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't call them a terrorist organization, but they have done some pretty sketchy things because they're the ones that like interfere with um, naval vessels and shipping vessels and stuff because. I mean, they'll, like, take their boats and put them in the way of people who are doing, performing legal whaling, even though it's horrible. But they're, they'll, are they like, oil rigs and stuff, they'll go chain themselves to things. And um, and they're very, it's an activist group. It's not a terrorist group, it's an activist group. Right. But they're all for, you know, the saving the planet, saving nature, uh-huh. um, and things that are green. I'm not sure where their peace peace name comes from, but that's just what they're called. And it's an agency that's been around for a long while. But Sure. So, you know, having known your, your story somewhat intimately, um, you know, you, you join this organization when you're nine. I mean, you don't know anything. My, my parents signed me up. I didn't ask for it. Ah, okay. <laughs> because they saw how, how motivated and dedicated I was to that, so they thought, hey, we'll sign up for Greenpeace. And so maybe as a nine-year-old, did you have any kind of what was your reasoning for want to want to save the, not to, not to join Greenpeace, but want to save the whales? There was a library book mm-hmm. um, in the school library that had some very graphic pictures of what they did to whales after they caught them in the open ocean, pulling them up on the back of the boat, slicing them open. I mean, just standing in knee deep blood, um, giant saws hacking away at the blubber and pulling out the 
entrails and cutting off big giant chunks and huh. burning and melting them down for their fat so they could get the oil. And, right. And I, again, I had already come through this traumatic experience of moving when I was young, and so I was just a very emotional kid. And so when I saw something like that, that I'm like, whales are cool. Whales are awesome. I mean, they're gigantic, first of all, but they're gentle. They don't eat meat. I mean, unless you're krill, I guess, but they don't, I mean, they're not hunters. They're not like orcas that are out there killing whales. Yeah, I mean, they're just very gentle giants. Yeah, and they didn't do anything to anybody. And why why, why would they be hunted almost to extinction just because some guy needs to light up his house? Right. Like, I just didn't, it just didn't make sense. So kind of this tone of wanting to fight for people or things or creatures that couldn't necessarily fight for themselves, advocate for themselves. Yeah. Which takes us to the Marine Corps. I was going to say, so I, I, I left Greenpeace and joined the United States Marines. Just ratcheted it <laughs> up a notch or two. Why not? Um, because I knew I needed, I, my dad had been in the Army and I knew I needed some discipline. I knew I needed some, some sort of direction. Structure, yeah. Structure, and I thought, well, Which, you know, by the I've way, been following orders since I was born, so this shouldn't be too big of a deal. Anecdotally, your parents signing you up for an activist organization is just a little uh, off putting to me, but that may say more about me than it does them. So. I think they didn't realize what it was. Okay. Because I think we got some like National Geographic magazines and there was probably like a card in there or something uh-huh. if you want more information. And so, but I started getting newsletters and magazines and stuff from Greenpeace and all Are that. Are they still, is Greenpeace still around? Oh, yeah, yeah, it's still a thing. Okay. Um, I'll do some I, research after this. I, uh, I, I don't think they necessarily realized I was nine or ten. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I was in the third or fourth grade. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, that, but that did come back in my background check whenever the Marine Corps was doing my background check that I had been a member of, and they're like, um, when were you a member of Greenpeace? I'm like, not a member of Greenpeace and they're like well it says here I'm like oh. <laughs> yeah uh, but they also my, my recruiter also asked me one time why I had never disclosed to him that I had been arrested for uh, grand theft auto larceny and assault and I'm like I've never done that uh, let alone been arrested for it I've never done that he's like well your background check came back and says that you did and I'm like huh um, first of all uh, Christopher Allen is a pretty common name, uh, so you might want to check. I actually found out a number of years later that the street that I lived on, there were two Christopher Matthew Allens that lived on the same wow. street, um, and our house numbers were very similar, except mine was northeast and his was southeast. Wow. Same street, yeah, and so that was the guy they were looking for. But uh, like, no, you might want to run my social security number, Staff Sergeant, because I have not done that. Right. I was always weird when they asked me if I had any kids that I knew about because I, at 18, <laughs> very conservative, never had any type of sexual activity. I'm like, yeah, no, pretty sure not at all. Mm-mm, right. None. Um, and at which point I'm like, why? How do you have kids you don't know about? And I'm like, oh, no, yeah, no, I'm not that guy. <laughs> um how do you have kids? You, so, don't know you don't know how to work, works, do you? I, was, I didn't when I was 18. You know, I was a really naive kid. Um, I thought I was the naive one here. And, uh, well, but that's the thing. I, I was just very sheltered. Completely and, different background. Yeah, yeah, very different background. Grew up in the Burbs, man. I mean, Blue Springs High School, where there was, like, out of a class of 725, there might have been the 25 that were not white. I mean, it was very, very vanilla. And... You know, and I was, you know, 
privileged. I got my, my parents sent me on a trip to Europe between my junior and senior year um, through an organization called People to People Student Ambassadors, which is still a, which is still a company today. They're just short term nice. student exchange trips kind of thing. Yeah. So I spent 30 days with 30, 40 people on a bus traveling around Europe, five different countries, and got to spend a week in a home in Austria with a family there and another week in Greece with a family there um, on the beach in their beach house. Sorry, excuse me. Flex. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I got plenty of flex. Um, but, I, but I have been... I've been blessed. I mean, my, my parents grew up poor, um, sharecroppers, raising tobacco in North Carolina, and, one, and just wanted what was better for my brother and I, mm-hmm. um, and so did everything they could to give us that. Um, so yeah, let's uh, let's circle back to uh, we we left off with Greenpeace and wanting to defend uh, fight for people <laughs> and things that uh, didn't you know can't really activate or advocate for themselves. Excuse me. Um, takes us to the Marine Corps. You're 18, 19 years old. Yeah, eighteen. Um, going to Longview, and just knew I needed some sort of direction. So I I was looking for a job one day uh, besides just making you know whatever minimum wage was as the you know scrubbing toilets at the church mm-hmm. which is necessary and, and meaningful but doesn't really pay the bills sure um, and so I saw an ad in the newspaper because f- we did that back then in the night early in, in 91 92 um, for learn how to be yeah, learn how to be a firefighter and I'm like hey cool I, that could be a fireman that'd be awesome I could you know it's it's not like a cop where I have to carry a gun I can just go help people put out fires and you know and give CPR and rescue cats out of trees and stuff. You Go know, about your business. Yeah. Um, and I called the number and it was a Navy recruiter. And I'm like, oh, that's just dirty. <laughs> Bait and switch. Um, big, well, because every person that goes in the Navy is trained how to be a fireman because yep. that's the d- deadliest thing that could ever happen on a ship is a fire. You know, and so everybody has to be prepared, prepared and trained to be able to do that besides whatever their normal occupation is in the Navy. Right. But that got me thinking, well, I guess I could look at the military because... Uh, like I said, my dad had been in the Army. I had had posters of Army stuff, helicopters mostly. I always wanted to be G.I. Joes. Oh, yeah. I wanted to be a, a helicopter pilot in the Army, fly Apaches and stuff when I was when I was a kid. But um, it just never panned out. Love helicopters. I've got flex. You ready? Flex coming. Flex warning. It's <laughs> incoming flex. Um, got to ride in my first helicopter uh-huh. when I was about eight. So it was not long after we moved here because uh, we just knew a guy that owned, owned one and took us out to his property one time and took us up. And so I got to sit with my hands on the on the controls and feet on the pedals. And he took his hands off the controls and was and at nine years, eight or nine years old, I was flying a helicopter. Um, and so it, I just immediately kind of got the bug. That never panned out, but uh, um, so I started thinking about it, and, and uh, the girl I was dating at the time, um, her dad was in the army, um, and even at the time he was in the reserves, and um, just kind of a history there. I had uncles and stuff that had been in all branches of service, and, and my my grandpa, my mom's side that I never met because he died before I was born. He was in the navy, and. And so I uh, started thinking about it and talking to her and talking to, you know, some other folks. And so just one day I picked up the phone book because, you know, we did that in 1991, 92, mm-hmm. um, and just looked up military recruiters and called the first number on the list. And it just happened to be Staff Sergeant McLean at uh, Marine Corps Recruiting Center in Olathe, Kansas. Um, and he thought I, he thought he was being punked 
um, because I said, hello, uh, Staff Sergeant, my name is Chris. I would like to get some information about the possibility to join the Marine Corps. Um, and he's like, is this a joke? I said, no, I'm just looking for something to do. I'm going to college right now. I just don't have any direction, need some discipline. He's like, really, who put you up to this? <laughs> and, and three times he, and before I finally said, no, I'm, I'm serious. What do I have to do? What do I need? He's like, oh, well, I'll meet you. Because <laughs> they were, I mean, again, in, in the early 90s, coming out of the 80s and everything was cool, but, but veterans weren't really... A big thing. In vogue. Right. And and even being in the military was declining. Recruiting was declining. There was no major conflicts. It's peacetime. Yeah, it was peacetime. Um, coming out of the... I mean, it was the Cold War that was over, but there was not really a whole lot going on. The Gulf War in the early 90s, um, right? The Gulf War had happened, mm-hmm. but was kind of done. I mean, it didn't take long. Right. For the, at least not the original. Not, not right. the first one, because right. it, was, it was just kind of, you know, one and done. You know? Sure. And so... Um, I met with him and started the process. I'd never taken the ASVAB. And right. so he's like, well, what do you want to do in the military? And I'm like, I don't have any idea. What am I qualified what, for? He's like, here you, should, you should take this test. And I went, okay. So I took the test, met him in his office after that. And a couple weeks later, when we got the results, and he handed me the big book and said, pick three. You can do anything you want. Uh, because I scored high enough to have done anything I wanted to in the, in the Marine Corps. <laughs> um. Which, as a Marine, I also recognize that that ain't saying a whole lot. <laughs> you know, but... Oh, don't, don't sell yourself short. Why no, no, no. That? I, well, because, I mean, everybody loves to make jokes about Marines eating crayons and, and just being ground pounders and jarheads. And, you know, the only thing we're good at is just as a blunt object to just smash things with. But, uh, you know, so I thought, well, uh, the things that I picked as my, my first three choices, one was, it was a combination of air traffic controller or enlisted flight crew so like a crew chief on a helicopter airplane something like that I was really hoping for crew chief because that was the closest thing I forgot I'd get to being a pilot Um, I think I picked like some sort of missile defense battery or something and then like military intelligence Um, and or something like that I'm not not even sure what it was and 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 went to boot camp um, in early 93 and changed my world you know and I found out at the end of boot camp, around the around the first of June, that uh, I had been selected for air traffic control slash enlisted flight crew. So I was still thinking, cool, I can be a crew chief on a helicopter or an airplane, a C-130 or something like that, because that'd be awesome. Right. Um, and uh, so I became an air traffic controller <laughs> uh, for the Marine Corps. When I spent did some uh, my initial boot camp and combat training in California, uh, then was sent to. Millington, Tennessee, just north of Memphis, when it was a Navy base, uh, to air traffic control school, and from there was, was sent to uh, Marine Corps Air Station New River in Jacksonville, North Carolina, where I spent the rest of my enlistment. Uh, never left the United States, never went overseas, never got deployed, never got shot at, never had to kill anybody. Um, the worst thing that happened to me was I tore up my knee playing football, so I have a service-connected injury, which warrants me a 10% disability through the Veterans Administration because... I got a first down and tore my ACL. And so I now get like $146 a month from the government because I they broke me while I was part of their responsibility. <laughs> um, got out, uh, went back to school to try to finish up uh, studying aviation. Was actually going to try to become a uh, crash investigator uh, for aircraft crashes. Okay. Uh, was through the NTSB was kind of my goal. 
Okay. Um, or like airport administration. I was taking some of those kind of classes because I had the background at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but then my second kid came along. And what? I, your second kid? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. While I was in the Marines, my first kid came along. I was 22. Okay. Um, Connor, God bless him. Uh, he was a pain in the butt as a baby because he was allergic to everything, including anything with lactose in it. Um, had colic and went straight from colic at three months to teething prematurely. And so he cried for about the first two years of his life, um, which was awful to the point where I wasn't sure I ever wanted to have another kid because, uh, he, I mean, he's fantastic now, but he was a horrible baby. <laughs> I mean, it's not his fault, of course, not his fault. It was not, not his choice to be a horrible baby. But right. it, just, it just happened that way. We were isolated. We were in North Carolina, away from all of our family members. And, you know, it was just, it was tough, but we did it. Um, got back. Uh, she went to work. I went to work as a mall cop. Yes, a mall cop. Uh, Independence Center. All right. Part-time while I was going to school. Um, and, you know, then within, I guess it was a, a year later, the second kid came along. Um, and as a baby, he was fantastic. You know, he was just, he was just perfect. But he grew out of that, so. <laughs> um, Forgive me. No, he's a good kid. He's he loves the Lord. He's serving the Lord. So I, 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 I can't complain about that. Sure. Um, and uh, so then ended up stopping school, um, was promoted all the way to the director of security at the Great Mall in Olathe. Wow. Great um, Mall of the Great Plains. The Great Mall of the Great Plains. Within, mm. uh, within a couple of years, I had made it to that point. All right. Uh, within six months, actually, at, at the Independent Center, my, the director quit. Um, and so they kind of made me the interim director. Hmm. I'd been there six months. All that was that made a bunch of people mad. Well, sure. That had been there for fourteen years or something like that, and all of a sudden I'm the new kid and I'm, I'm in charge. Um, within the first week of him being gone is when some of you guys might remember, if you can remember back to the year '97. Oh, so good. Um, there was a bank robbery in Blue Springs. And it was before they had built all of the stores and, ho- and hotels and stuff along along Little Blue there, mm-hmm. in between I seventy and the mall, um, and it was just a big open field with a, with the river running through it, mm-hmm. um, so it was just kind of nasty marshland. And so the, poli- the the bank robbers first thing in the morning got in a shootout with the Blue Springs Police Department going westbound on I seventy, mm-hmm. and their car got disabled right kind of adjacent to to the mall on I seventy, mm-hmm. and the bank robbers started running towards the mall. Mm-hmm. 10 o'clock in the morning on a, like, I don't know, Tuesday or something. Just random, just random day of the week. Bang, bang. And so we didn't know about that until every law enforcement officer from three counties started showing up in our parking lot asking what, you know, where they are, what's going on, what's, you know, and all of a sudden me being, being the new interim director for like three days <laughs> is trying to, you know, figure out what the heck to do because we got to keep the mall safe and because, uh-huh. you know, and these guys have disappeared in this marshland between the mall and, and the, and the highway. And I mean, there was like the SWAT teams there, helicopters flying around. I mean, law enforcement officers from the counties around every city, municipality around, because these were armed this is, bank robbers shooting at police officers. This is TV. This is oh yeah. This is oh yeah yeah yeah. Oh. I mean, this is cops for real. The whole nine, yeah. You know, and here I am, mall cop. You know, first grade, thinking, can you, can somebody just hand me a rifle because I can shoot? <laughs> I'm a but, marine. Yeah, yeah. I've been out of the Marine Corps for, you know, four months. You mm-hmm. know, and and uh, 
you know, and so me and the other three, either two guards that were on duty that day, just the public safety officers, because we weren't even security, we we're just public safety, trying to go about business as usual and not be on the news and not speak to anybody and not give it away any information and not, you know, and, and without having any idea of what was coming. And so right. um, they caught one of the guys somewhere, um, but there was still another one at large. And so, like four o'clock in the afternoon, I was getting ready to get off, get off my shift, and um, was standing. This was before they rebuilt the mall on the inside, so the the whole setup was different. But right as you come in the main entrance from 39th Street, there was the information desk, and then there was a set of escalators that went all the way down into the food court. Mm-hmm. And so, the one thing they had done really well at that point was train me about things that took place in the mall because it was a mall and it was the you know the late 90s and so it was a popular place and so the worst thing we ever did was just tell people to you know stop making noise stop being loud stop running stop you know just whatever just silly stuff <laughs> um and so i hear before i see pounding coming up the escalator and then this kid just kind of runs right by the the information desk and I see him, and I kind of look over. I just kind of glance over, and I was like, walk, please, as he's sprinting towards the front doors. Mm-hmm. And as I turn back around, I see the team picture of every law enforcement agency in the country running up the escalator, chasing this guy <laughs> towards the front doors. They catch him in between, in like the airlock, so it's in like mm-hmm. the vestibule between the doors and the other doors, mm-hmm. and then like drag him out into the parking lot. And so evidently... My whole involvement in this was I told the bank robber to please walk in the mall. <laughs> that was kind of the highlight of my experience at that point. Oh, all right. Because um, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I just did that. <laughs> um, and uh, if I don't know whether he did or not, but memory if memory serves, he kind of had this cheesy grin on his face as he ran by as I'm telling him to walk because he's running from the cops having been in a bank robbery first thing this morning. And so he's like, really? That's That's... Yeah, that's that's my mall cop story. Enforce the law, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> then went from there um, to do some... Uh, I had a, a separation uh, because we had some disagreements on my idea of taking care of my guards and they had their idea about how to save money. And so those ah. those things didn't line up. Ah. So they uh, they told me they would find somebody that would that whose values would line up more closely to that. Acquiesce. Yeah. So I packed up my stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and said happy Valentine's Day because that was uh, oh that was the year 2000 which after I had spent December 31st 1999 into January 1st of the year 2000 with the Y2K bug um, spent that shift overnight at the mall making sure that everything didn't explode or at least to be there to call somebody if it did right um, so that was yeah that was just odd mm-hmm. um Went to work for a guy at church who owned a construction company doing like, he was building houses and stuff at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, did that for the summer until work slowed down, then got a job as a substitute teacher because mm-hmm. uh, work had slowed down. Uh, got a sub and started subbing at, um, I think I spent one day at Ruskin and then another day at Smith Hale. Uh, and at the end of my day or a couple days at Smith Hale, the principal approached me and asked me if I wanted a long-term position as a sub and I said absolutely because then I don't have to worry about getting a call every day or not getting a call or have some steady income and so Mm -hmm. I spent uh, that was within like the first two weeks of school starting Mm -hmm. Um, so I spent 
the year teaching math to seventh graders at Smith Hale Middle School. Mr. Uh, Cobb. Mr. Daryl Cobb. Yes. Uh, where, as I'm not mistaken, um, one young Koo Atkins was uh, <laughs> one of my students, as a matter of fact. Uh, yes. Um, Senior yes. Lamont. Yes. Um, and was. if that name last name sounds familiar, Maurice, you want to talk about your connection to Lamont Koo Atkins? Yeah. So uh, the aforementioned uh, Lamont Atkins is my older brother. Mm-hmm. And Lamont's in seventh grade at this time. And so this is where we start to. Chris, I, I want to tell you, thank you for telling us your entire backdrop story. We ain't even done yet. No, no, <laughs> well, but at this, at this twenty years ago, at, at this point, right? <laughs> at, the, at this point is where we're getting to the inner, the inner intersection of where you and I stories start. We're getting to the runway. Yeah, we're getting there. You get to the runway here, and so Lamont's my older brother. He's in Chris's seventh grade math class, and your 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 profession, your vocation at that point in time is a is a math teacher. Yes, but in the meantime, so, I had also been. Um, once once I got back from the Marine Corps, mm-hmm. uh, I started attending my dad's church, the Lee Sun Baptist Temple, and right. got involved with the youth department there. And right. was at at some point while I was while I was there, probably in '99, um, asked to become a part of the part of the assistant pastoral team mm-hmm. uh, at the church as as the youth pastor. Right. And so going to seventh grade, teaching math at a school where we were running vans and buses to go pick kids up from that area anyway seemed like a natural intersection of where I needed to be and what I wanted what I needed to do and mm-hmm. so it worked out very well sure um, in the fall of that year um, of the year 2000 well the summer before school started it was the first year that we took a, tr- a group of people to summer camp to church camp mm. um, and that was an interesting experience because we went to Colorado and while we were on that trip, visited Columbine High School, which had been about three months before the scene of the first of the major school shootings. Right. And so it was within a, within a few months, we were taking our teenagers there just to talk about the futility of life and, and the impact that people can make and, you know, really kind of a hard sell towards salvation and, and having a good Christian testimony at school. Yeah. Um, but uh, later on the fall, uh, because I, my sub pay wasn't great, my wife at the time was was working, but she wasn't. It wasn't make, she wasn't making great money, and so I got a second job, um, actually working at Toys R Us. It's my only retail experience job, um, working at Toys R Us over off of Bannister when it was still there. Hey, because uh, we lived not just right down the street off Eighty Seventh Street. Hey, and so I I spent my days in school and spent my evenings at Toys R Us. Um, through Christmas, and I actually have worked a Black Friday at a toy store, uh-huh. uh, which was just craziness. Uh-huh. Um, but at the end of that, after Christmas was over, it was more seasonal thing, and so they were cutting folks back, and so my hours got cut way back. But I started doing some volunteer work, uh, which turned into part-time work at the church in the office, just... Mm-hmm tracking visitors more than anything because we had a lot of folks visiting the church and just you know who was where making sure they got contacted making sure they got followed up with okay um spreadsheets man spreadsheets it's the story of my life in spades um this guy and so then once school got out i was looking at um basically being unemployed uh, until i was offered to go on full-time at the church 
And so at the end of the school year, I went on full time with the church. Um, and then, you know, missions trips and that kind of bled into, because it was more outreach and visitor stuff hmm. as, a, as a clerical work on a daily basis. But then that turned into full time youth ministry. Um, How did it turn into full-time youth ministry? Uh, because I was already doing the work. I was already I was I was already ministering and like teaching Sunday school and working with the teenagers on Wednesday nights and things like that. Okay. But, but by the time it got to, if I was going to work there every day, mm-hmm. I was like, well, I can still do some of this visitor tracking, but I can also start doing some a, a little deeper dive into youth ministry and, and be able to plan events and you know counseling with parents and more preparation for classes and discipleship and just all kinds of stuff so okay uh, um aside from any number of other duties at the church like building and construction and church other duties as a sign (laughs) yeah um and so um i was there for 10 years uh basically doing that oh my uh, from the beginning of 2000 until 2010. Uh, in the meantime, their third kid came along. Um, okay. And um, there was a couple of miscarriages hiding in there, and so that was, you know, part of part of just the the agony of human existence. Um, yeah. Moved from our little house off 87th Street in Raytown to uh, a house out here in Lee Summit. Uh, it was going on missions trips to a couple different places. Uh, went to Africa my first time in 2003. I think the Dominican Republic the first time in that same year. Um, okay. um, I have now been to Uganda, Africa three times. And I think the last time I counted, I have been in 14 countries around the world. Um, just whether, you know, like passing through in the airport or... Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was talking, the last time I was in Africa was last fall, and I was talking to Arturo, who went with me, Arturo Bermudez, and he uh, he says that he, he counts his visit to a country um, if he poops there. <laughs> so if he's ever pooped someplace, he says he considers himself to have visited that country because he's <laughs> left something behind. A, a piece of himself. Left a piece of himself behind, yeah. <laughs> So uh, I've been in Rwanda, but only in the airplane. We never actually got out of the airplane. So, but I still count that one just because it's Rwanda. Um, sure. I count that one because before the flights take off to leave Rwanda, the flight crew walks down the aisles um, with aerosol spray cans to try to kill any microbes, bacteria, or mosquitoes that may have entered the plane while the doors were open. And so I figure if they're going to spray me down with some sort of toxic chemical, they consider me to have been in Rwanda. <laughs> because, fair. So that's my that's, that's fair, my justification yeah. for that. Oh yeah, makes sense. Um, 2010, um, things were not great uh, with my wife. Uh, things were not great at the church. We had gone through uh, the 2008-9 recession, depression. Um, um, as some people have called it, that I, that I heard after the fact, you know, 2008, the year that didn't exist or didn't happen or something like that, because that's, that's um, there was a pretty serious church split. There was some, just a huge cultural divide um, between some of the folks at church. Um, I did my best to try to stay loyal to the place that I knew that God had planted me. Uh, my wife had gotten offended uh, by the pastor and some things that he had said. And there was just some irreconcilable differences there, which eventually led to her and I getting divorced, um, which was awful, just absolutely awful. Because sure. it wasn't because we had 
there wasn't any kind of infidelity. There wasn't any sort of, it was, it was all related to, um, church stuff. And it's like, well, that's, that's, that shouldn't be a reason to get divorced because you disagree over church stuff. Uh-huh. But it happened. Um, I tried to stay faithful and continue ministering. We ended up going to a different church so, so that I could, so that we could try to be under a different pastor, uh, so that she wouldn't have that same offense. Um, but the pastor we ended up with was more offensive than the other one. Um, which meant that going to a different church meant I had to leave my job, which is when I got the job at Lifeguard Youth Development. Um, at one point, I was teaching those lifeguard classes while on duty at church as the youth pastor because those things overlapped so well. Mm-hmm. Um, and at one point, I was actually doing that and working behind the front desk at the Hampton Inn uh, trying to make ends meet because our hours had gotten cut at the church because the income had, had, dried, had dried up. Yeah, so I ended up working three jobs, um, which was just murder. Sure. Uh, um, so I ended up changing churches, getting a different job, um, and lost friends over it um, because people couldn't understand. But I wasn't real forthcoming with information either, so there was a lot of things they didn't understand because I just wasn't telling them stuff. Right. Um, relationships that are still not the same, even even now, ten years later. But that's okay. Um, Sorry, I know you're going to ask me another question. I just want to get through this real quick. Because, you know, at at that point, I worked at Lifeguard for five or six years Mm -hmm. uh, on staff and became the program manager there for the, uh, it was actually the Women's Clinic of Kansas City, which is a crisis pregnancy center, um, alternative to Planned Parenthood kind of thing, trying to keep people from getting abortions. Yeah. Um, Why? Uh, Because I still wanted to make sure I was helping people that didn't have a voice speak and 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 try to advocate for themselves not advocate um what's our looking for advocate advocate not abdicate that's a different thing advocate <laughs> for themselves for maybe people that can't speak for themselves yeah because um, their voice, babies can't voices speak. can't be right. heard yeah. um started teaching the, the absence classes and so on um did that for five years until the federal grant ran out so the company closed uh, that's when we were in those white van conversations um Bring it back. Company closed. Um, and um, in the meantime, uh, there's so many things that overlap. It's just hard to keep them all straight chronologically. Sure. There, and- was, this, there was an opportunity where uh, we had gone to that church. I met my, my now wife, Susan, and we got married. And then that church, that whole church changed because, again, there was a huge split based off of just some personality conflicts and any number of other things which I won't go into details, but sure. Um, when the new pastor came out, he brought three or 400 of his closest friends to kind of saturate <laughs> all the ministries and, and because he had a very specific way of doing things. Yeah. And we found ourselves just kind of attending church without any ministry to do, which was like torture. Um, and so reconnected um, with the Lisa Baptist Temple at, at their request and was an amicable transfer back from one church to the other. Mm-hmm. Um in the meantime, God ordained uh, as a pastor, uh, kind of around that same time of transition. Mm-hmm. Um, went back to the police on Baptist Temple with the understanding that I would be kind of groomed to either start a church or take over for my dad as the pastor there, depending on his health, which was declining, and on you know just kind of the trends and things about how things went in the church. Yeah. Um, so it turns out God had in mind that I should start a church uh, in the midst of all that. And so um, we 
planted a church in Grand Valley in what will be six years coming up in September. Um, so that was 2014. Um, so I was still working at Lifeguard at that point in time. Uh, then ended up, after they closed, I went to work for a company called Excelligent, uh, doing commercial real estate research. It's kind of like the MLS for, for commercial buildings. Okay. Um, worked there for almost two years until they closed because there was some litigation going on and the board of directors just decided to shut everything down. And So we got an email that said you need to be out of the building in 30 minutes because your keys won't work anymore. Mercy. Two weeks before Christmas. Um, so that was a lovely Christmas. Um, spent the next three months looking for a job. Started my next job in March um, of the following year, which would have been 2018 at Goodwill, where I was the trainer teaching computer classes. I built a computer curriculum um, to teach clients to try to help them be more marketable in the job market. Mm -hmm. um, give them computer skills so they can actually do some huh. higher paying jobs. Yeah. Uh, again, because they were a group of people that had been marginalized that just didn't couldn't advocate for themselves or didn't have the skill they needed to be able to, to flourish. And so I was doing my best to sure. fill that gap. Um, taught everybody from single moms, drug addicts in rehab facilities to homeless vets um, and just anybody that anybody I could uh, to just get them some sort of computer skill to help them be more in touch with with culture and with technology yeah um, because they just didn't have some of those I mean, some of the folks were coming out of prison that hadn't touched a computer in 20 years right um, I was actually teaching classes in in the Johnson County Kansas adult correctional facility um, oh, wow. to folks that were still incarcerated that were looking at getting out and doing something with their life and trying to help them be prepared for something like that when you know so anyway um, and then COVID hit and uh, Goodwill went from I don't know millions of dollars of revenue over the course of their 16 stores down to a few thousand dollars uh, um, and so they shut down their stores laid off four or five hundred employees and only kept just the skeleton crew of, of, right. of executives that could make those the kind of decisions. Much like everybody's doing. Much like everybody. Um, and I was one of those people, so I was furloughed for 30 days and then finally laid off. Um, during that layoff, I was able to work with um, another agency helping homeless people just go in and get a meal. I was having folks wash their hands and check temperatures just as a volunteer um, yeah. at a big homeless camp. Still pastoring the church, still just going through personal crap and relationship issues and kids growing up and unemployment and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and uh, so that brings us to today, Monday, August the 17th, 2020, where I am still unemployed. However, had two pretty good interviews last week and a couple of other companies that are interested in, in having interviews with me. Yeah. Um, and so I am just, uh, my statement when I left Goodwill uh, to my boss who had called me to tell me that I was being laid off permanently was that uh, um, God pays my bills, whether he chooses to use you guys or somebody else to do it, and that's completely up to him. And so sure. uh, for the last five months, he's been using the state of Missouri and the federal government through the uh, stimulus package to pay my bills. But uh, now that federal government stimulus is gone and I have used up the last, I think when I filed last night, the last $48 of my unemployment that I had eligibility for. So uh, it is time for God to come through in a pinch because 
now I have nothing but faith. <laughs> yeah. And how was your day? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, talk about privilege earlier. You, you mentioned it. You know, I'm the mixed 30-year-old blind male uh, who has found his business just re- revving up in the midst of, in the midst of COVID. So, yeah, I I have no complaints in that regard. Uh, I have compassion um, because I mean, sure, yeah, you know, I've I've been out of work in the past. I, I know what that's like. I, I don't have any children to provide for, but it's another story for a different day. But um, yeah, I, I suppose. I, so I hope you guys have enjoyed this long journey to get to this point of Chris uh, giving you guys the last 47 Seven. years. Just yes, got it right. Um, of, of this life. Um, you know, I suppose I could have just started with a simple question. You're, you're the, past, the senior pastor of the Valley Baptist Church. You know, how did you get to this point? And I think you've answered that. Yeah. But what what things to answer that question, what are some of the things that you think may, you might have missed that you'd like to add in? Yeah. So it's at some point I did go back to school uh, to finish my college degree. Mm-hmm. I didn't. I, I, so I had gone to Longview before the Marines. I went to the University of Central Missouri. Um, go Mules. Uh, after I got out of the Marines, I made the dean's list every semester. Hey. Um, flex. <laughs> You don't shout out your own flex, but I'm going to. Because I'm proud of that. Sure, no, yeah. That's a big deal. Please. Um, And and that was just very secular things. A lot of aerodynamics classes and and aviation classes, but it was also just some general ed stuff. (laughs) I took film appreciation. Hey. (laughs) Because you got to have those liberal arts classes. Of course. And and also theater appreciation. Hey. you know, those are my. Those yeah, you my didn't like Hamilton. Credit. You didn't like. Hamilton. I, I was. Uh, well, you know what? Don't don't. <laughs> just, yeah, let's wait. Let's hold on to that one. Um, but uh, so once I stopped going to college at UCM, uh-huh. uh, there was a, a pretty long break. But then finally went back to school. Just about the time Caleb was born, my my youngest son, and that was 2003, and so I ended up graduating in May of 2006 from Calvary University with a degree in a Bachelor of Science degree in organizational leadership with a minor in Bible. Okay. Um, and I think that was tremendously helpful uh, to be able to to be prepared and equipped to be able to start a church or at least to be able to continue to pastor. Because I, I was already on a pastoral staff. I was already preaching every week. I was already making lessons and outlines and teaching discipleship and baptizing people. And so I was already... The only, really, the only thing that I hadn't done, I think, at that point, and I might have even by that point, was was host a Lord's Supper, uh, host a communion. But I, but I know that I had at one point in time filled in for my dad yeah. uh, doing that. Um, and those are the two ordinances of the church is baptism and the Lord's Supper. The first time I baptized anybody was in Lake Victoria in Uganda on that first missions trip. That you have a picture of. Which I do have a couple pictures of. That I've um, seen. Yeah. yeah um, standing about knee deep in water that we couldn't see from about 500 yards from where five people had been killed by one crocodile um, a few weeks beforehand. Uh, so that was a little uh, nerve wracking. Uh, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, that was one of those times where, strange enough, the pastor didn't get in the water that day to baptize anybody, but uh, he sent uh, Jerry Fincham and I into the water with Jeff Demers, the missionary, and the three of us stood there and baptized an entire church, starting with the pastor. We baptized the pastor of a church because he was just the one that was willing to stand up and preach, had gotten saved, but had never been baptized before. So we baptized him first wow. and then everybody else in the church, wow. um, which was an amazing thing. I'm, I'm sure. Um 
So, I mean, like I said, I, I was born, I was at church within a week of, with him being two weeks old. I mean, yeah. and then haven't ever stopped. Right. Um, the first ministry I was involved in, I was about five and was, was singing in a Christmas play at church yeah. uh, in front of a thousand people. Um, singing a song called it was a Christmas play so it was a song called When Daddy Read Luke Chapter 2 mm. uh, and it was just me and my timid little southern draw voice singing on a stage just you know with this whole ensemble behind me but it was Lord you know When Daddy Read Luke Chapter 2 why weren't there video recordings <laughs> back in 1981 well that would have been, that been 78, 78 yeah, yeah, I'm, thinking eight, I'm, I'm going back to the 8 number I'm sorry you know, forgive me but uh been in church since I was born. Yeah, you know, I I had my rebellious years because <gasps> baptism was an issue for me because I was just such a timid, scared kid. I didn't I, the church that I went to in South Carolina had a rule they just didn't baptize anybody until they were ten because yeah. they, they just wanted people to understand why they were getting baptized. So they weren't, they weren't baptizing every five or six year old that had a salvation experience. They wanted you to really know what was going on. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, that's just fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember you know bowing my head one night when I was five or six during our family devotions. And praying for Jesus to save me. I'm not uh, whether it took or not. I don't know. That's up to God. But I know that I knew that I had gotten in trouble at school. That I had sinned, and I was that I deserved to go to hell. And so I asked Jesus to cleanse me of my sin that night. Um, I did that again at about 12 or 12 or 13 at a youth rally at the church. Um, I still remember I went into one of the bathrooms in the basement of what is now Graceway, uh, the church over in Raytown. Mm-hmm. Um, next to this big giant like pipe that runs through the men's bathroom in the basement and that's where I, I just by myself prayed again for Jesus to take my sin away and, and that I acknowledged him then and, um, but I'd never been baptized because I was just scared because this was a 3,000 seat auditorium sure. and it was just super intimidating Yeah. Um, and I was just terrified um, and so I spent my entire adolescence into my teenage years pretending uh, that I'd been baptized or flat out lying about it or you know so when it came time for the Lord's Supper and it was this big giant church where they're passing these plates around and there's ushers and deacons and you know and, and so I would pretend that I was taking a cracker out of the plate and squeezing it between my fingers and pretend to eat it when it was time to eat it and I would tell people that I was allergic to grape juice but that's why I wasn't taking any uh, because I was so oh A so proud and so, I had so much pride but so much fear associated with with being the outcast because hey, I'm the preacher's kid. I'm supposed to be I'm supposed mm. to be all that. Mm. Um, never took discipleship as a teenager because I knew that lesson three was on baptism and just didn't want to confront it. Didn't want to be confronted with it. Um, I, I knew mm. the material. I knew the answers. I knew I knew this, <laughs> and, and so I just was like, no, I'm just not going to. Until I finally had one of my youth workers, just about the time I, we were changing churches finally asked me why I never why I never took discipleship and I told him that exact reason I said because less than three I'd never been baptized um, but when dad started the church on the very first day when everybody was supposed to come forward during the invitation to join the church formally mm-hmm. I went forward to join the church and said but I need to be baptized and so I was the very first person ever baptized with Lisa Baptist Temple after the church started um, and so you know but a lot of it from there was just I've just been in ministry since I was since I was a kid. I was working. I worked in Awanas uh, as a teenager, leading, you know, kindergarten, first grade classes, and I worked with teenagers in the junior high when I was in the senior high. I worked with high school kids and junior high kids when I was in college. 
when I was in the Marines, we found a church and I was working with seventh and eighth grade boys there in their class. Um, I have just always found somebody to minister to because that's just kind of been my, that's my background. That's my history. That's my right. life story. Yeah. And so becoming a pastor was natural for me. It was just kind of the next step because I'd always kind of expected it. I mean, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be a missionary. And strangely enough, I wanted to be a missionary to China, which now my my middle son, who I share a birthday with, I guess his intention once he graduates from Bible college is to work on becoming a missionary to China. Um, and so, All right. um, and I'm like, okay, well, that's fantastic. Um, but, you know, to start the church, you know, like I said, it was, some of it was education. A lot of it was experience. A lot of it was qualification. Um, the ordination that I, that I received from five or six men, pastors that had known me that, that could vouch for my abilities and my education and my faithfulness was humbling, uh, to say the least. Um, sure. But then to have the conversation with God one day when he was telling me that it was, that I needed to start a church, you know, just sitting on a, sitting at a picnic table out at Longview Lake, just overlooking the water, which is kind of where I go to meditate and to, to be alone with God. Mm-hmm. Um, and to take that information back to my pastor and have him agree that that's what God was calling me to do. Mm-hmm. And then having other pastors tell me the same thing, that they agreed with me because I had, had people praying about it. And to have other folks confirm my calling. Um, yeah. And so it was, at that point, then it just became how and nuts and bolts of when and where and who and logistics yeah logistics and so uh, because I've known people that have gone out to try to start churches or that said they were going to go start a church just because they got mad at the church they were in but they don't have that type of calling or that type of um, credit I guess or accreditation I guess is I don't know what the word is but um, validation from other pastors that say yes you are qualified and yes we believe this is what God wants you to do and yes we're going to support you to go do that mm-hmm. um, and let you know that we love you and care about you and that we think you're, you're going to be successful just just follow God um, hmm. and and so that was I mean that's huge yeah so. I'm sure yeah and so as far as you, you started the church you, you, you were ordained you were uh, and so in the nuts and bolts as far as starting the church um, what was that experience like? Well, this is where I can ask you that you were there <laughs> um, it was it was maybe, uh, maybe maybe next episode you interview me I mean maybe so <laughs> um, well that was that was odd because it had to be confirmed and then you know Susan and I had prayed about that and um, at that point in time we'd only been married four years, not even three and a half years, not even four years yet, uh-huh. when we were getting ready to start the church. And so that was a huge step because, you know, one of the things I prayed about was where, um, because I had a number of different places in in mind as a possibility. Sure. Um, Southley Summit, Grandview, um, just, just kind of all over the map. But I started, I got a map out one day, started looking and plotting places where I knew that there was not just a Baptist church, because there's a lot of Southern Baptist churches out there, but there was a, a Baptist church that I knew that our church had fellowship with mm-hmm. that I knew the pastor or knew of the pastor and knew that, that their, what their theology was. And, you know, and I, and I didn't want to go any place to try to 
become competition. Steal shit. Yeah, I, I didn't want to do that. And so, um, looking at East Kansas City, uh, it was one of the things that I can I can clearly say on that day when I was sitting out at the lake, um, I had I had the map out and had kind of, uh, I've still got the map around here somewhere in, a, in my desk someplace, but it's, there was a little box um, showing the greater Kansas City area um, and then the map was kind of blown up of a certain part because I think it was like a Jackson County Parks and Rec map mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just started putting dots where I knew the churches were on that. And then God just very clearly told me to think outside the box. Um, and so the first area that I looked at was there was a kind of a gap in the Blue Springs area, um, except I knew that Harvest was there. But there wasn't a whole lot of other stuff out in that area, and just outside of that box was Grain Valley. And I had talked to one of the guys at Harvest about, because he lived in Grain Valley, and he'd always wanted to kind of start a church there, and even had a name picked out and stuff of how he was going to go about doing it, but just never had the, never had that calling, never had that, you know, pastoral consent, approval, whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Sure. And so I started working with him, um, and then started just telling folks, hey, I've, we're going to start a church in Grain Valley um, probably in September, sometime in the fall, and are you interested? Um, I was told that I could I could um, basically interview folks at the church that we were currently going to uh, for the folks that had ever expressed any kind of interest in being involved in ministry with me or something like that. Yeah. Um, and because, again, I didn't want to destroy one church just to build another one. And that was kind of a weird call because, you know, uh, pastors are just very possessive of their people as they as, as they should be. Um, and so it was it was kind of rocky. Uh, and I don't want to get into much details because it is my dad, and I still love him and respect him as the pastor. And um, but you know, so I I talked to a number of folks and had some tell me yes and had some tell me no, and then. I uh, finally got to the point where he announced what was going on and said anybody that was interested had X number of days or something to pray about it and then let me know uh, one way or the other if they were interested. And the funniest thing that kind of to me that happened was people would come up to me and apologize and tell me, Chris, I'm just sorry. I just don't think God's calling me to go with you. And I'm like, you don't have to apologize for that, man. That's <laughs> great. That's fine. Because I'm not, I, and my, my statement is still, I'm not worried about the ones that tell me no. I'm worried about the ones that tell me yes. Because those are the ones that terrify me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got to care for those people. I got to lead those people. I got to, you know. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, I gotta, I've got to be responsible and accountable for those people. Right. Um, and so, um, first Sunday in September 2014, we started the church with 29 people. Um, we met in the Grain Valley Community Center where we just rented the had our sound system and projector and stuff and set up and started off on our first day with a full music service with all hail the power of Jesus name as our first song we sang and we're, we've sung it first every week for every every uh, anniversary since and we're going to do it again here in a couple weeks um, yeah and uh, uh, Maurice was leading music and um, and we, we didn't have Sunday school classes or anything else we had, had two deacons that had gone with me Terry and Luke um, we've added one additional person since then, Steve, um, as deacons, and um, we've gained some, we've lost some in six years, but we've, you know, we support three American missionaries in foreign countries and a national pastor in Uganda, so Vincent in Uganda, who's from Uganda, so yeah. um, so we are 
trying to do our part to fulfill the Great Commission, reach people for the Lord, support yeah. missionaries, and yeah. uh, in fact, we've got a, a guest missionary coming to speak this coming Sunday at the church, so, right. um, who I've never met, um, Kyle Breyer, I think is his name, mm-hmm. going to Romania. Mm-hmm. Um, from Indiana? From India. He is from Indiana. Uh, but... Um, so we're looking forward to him being there. I'll actually be out of town uh, celebrating Susan's birthday, but uh, you know, uh, it'll be it's good because we want to make sure that we still have people that see the vision to reach the lost, not just in Jerusalem here or Judea in our county or our state, but uh, in the uttermost parts of the earth. So we may not all be able to go, but we can certainly support those that do. For sure. And so as we wrap, I think we're getting close to time. First of all, is, is there anything else you want to say? As far as by way of introduction to the people who you are, things like that. <laughs> um, my upcoming birthday in February uh-huh. of 2021. Yes. I will be 48 years old. Yes, sir. And that will be the 40th anniversary of my first Lego set that I got for my birthday when I turned eight years old. <laughs> so February, I'll be celebrating 40 years on my experience with Legos. Um, I, have a, I have a huge Lego city and, and I've just collected them. I still get sets occasionally and put them together it's kind of therapy right um, gave Maurice his first Legos the other day <laughs> he did so let's 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 peer into that because I wanted to touch oh, on something and I ride a motorcycle <laughs> right that's another story yeah so um, for those of you who've been paying any any close attention we, we said the number eight was significant earlier the age of eight was significant at the age of eight Chris started building things <laughs> just a little um, a little bit about myself uh, at the age of eight, um, I met Jesus, um, and he started building things. I, I have a shirt, it's my own personal brand, called Meditate. It's letters M-E-T, lowercase, the at symbol and the number eight. God started building things. Where I started going to this church, these crazy people who were majority white, uh, and coming into this urban context, running around our neighborhood, inviting kids to church. It's, craziest thing I've ever seen in my life up to eight years I'm, I'm not kidding it's ridiculous and so these people is this old guy who's no longer with us uh, Tom Ingram oh yeah uh, stopped me and gave me a flyer and I ran home with my mom and I'm like mom mom can I go to church she's like you wanna go to church I'm like yeah they're gonna give me stuff what are you talking about they're gonna give you free stuff yeah exactly um, it's, it's the infamous spring campaign right and so yeah, man. Um, you know, so so yeah. Much like Chris, you know, my heart has always been for kids because that's when my life changed forever. Um, and we can get into my story as we already have on this podcast in the past. We'll peer into that more. Maybe on the next episode, we'll just kind of peer on how you and I linked up. Sure. Um, but yeah, you um, you know, you you kind of had this common thread kind of woven throughout your whole story of you know just kind of defending or advocating or um, representing people or places or things that can't really speak up or fight for themselves. Is that still kind of something that's a value to you? Yeah, um, it really is. I, uh, you know, I, I have taken jobs specifically to be able to do that. I have noticed that you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of noise in our culture. There's a lot of talking heads. There's a lot of just horrible things um, that are going on. There's a lot of misunderstandings and misrepresentations. There's a lot of statistics that get thrown around. Um, 
but uh, I still think it's important that everyone, and, and, and I don't know if this is an American thing, but uh, I genuinely just believe that everyone has something to say. Everyone has some sort of value to add to the community, to the culture, to the to life itself, because we're all created in the image and likeness of God. And there are certain people that won't ever stand up for themselves. And it's not because they can't, they just won't. Um, because sure. it may be fear, it may be guilt, it may be shame, it may be any number of other things. But, you know, if they have an opinion, if they have something to say, you know, I think that I, I think that a more diverse group of, of thinkers thinks a more diverse group of thoughts. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's value in that because, you know, uh, when I, like I said, when I went to high school and it was so vanilla, everybody pretty much dressed the same, talked the same, walked the same, listened to the same kind of music, and we were just very similar. Mm-hmm. And anybody that was a little bit different stood out. Sure. You know, my one of my best friends, Mike, was six foot one Chinese kid he, you don't want to talk about somebody that stood out he stood out because he was brilliant went to right. Princeton on an academic scholarship I Holy mean smokes. brilliant kid yeah you know and, and, but he stood out and you know the, the other kids that were there that had any sort of racial diversity besides just white red was they stood out mm-hmm. you know I, I don't remember their, I don't remember them being picked on I don't remember them being um, persecuted or ridiculed, but I wasn't them. So it could have been happening. I just didn't know about it because I I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't I didn't know that type of behavior. Right. You know, I grew up watching the Dukes of Hazard, and I knew what the Rebel flag was on the top of their car, and I knew because you know, again, I, my roots are from the South. So I mean, I under, I understood all that, but it's just not something I ever participated in because I never I was never taught hate. It wasn't experiential. It, it wasn't. It was it was educational. I mean, it was it was it was knowledge, but it wasn't it wasn't an experience for me, right. you know. And and I'm thankful for that, <laughs> yeah. You know, because it could have gone very poorly had it been the other way around. Now, I, I I'm familiar with off-color jokes, and I probably told a few, but because they were funny, not because I thought I was ridiculing somebody else. It was sure, you know. I I just again, I was really naive. Yeah. I didn't understand the way the world actually works. Mm-hmm. And it's... You think you do now? I still don't think I do now, no. <laughs> I like being naive. I do. I, I like I like having some surprise. I like having... I don't, I, I'm, I've gotten to be so cynical and jaded over the years just from, from mm-hmm. hurt or from uh, betrayal or from just being... I'm just living life as an adult in this country mm-hmm. that sometimes I like... It's refreshing to not think the worst or just as your first gut instinct to just automatically think something's wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and it is nice sometimes to just think that maybe something's okay and something's right mm-hmm. without having to worry about, you know, something just automatically being wrong. Yeah. But, and so sometimes it gets me in trouble because I, I, I'm easy to believe people. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I, th- I think that's something like, it's biblical. I mean, you go to First Corinthians 13, and it's like, what does love do? Right. You know, and not only that, you know, people think you're so childish of being naive. No, it's like, you forget how Romans, I mean, excuse me, First Corinthians 13 ends. He talks about being mature. Yep. He talks about putting away childish things. Yep. And if you take putting away childish things in concert with the fact that, you know, hopes all things, it's not 
childish or immature to to hope. Well, and right, God is love. Yeah, and so I, I promise you that God is not naive. <laughs> no, or nor childish. I mean, he is. No, he is God Almighty, and so with all of taking all that, you know, the Bible also says that love covers a multitude of sin. And I think that sometimes, I mean, nobody's ever going to be perfect. Yeah. Uh, the world is never going to be perfect. But God said, still love people. Love them when they're broken. Love them when they're hurting. Love them when they're wrong. Yeah. Um, love them when they're right and you're wrong. Yeah. This, love, <laughs> you know, just love people. This, this may, and this may be a bit extreme, but like, I was just talking to people over the weekend about this, that, you know, love God and love people, you know, new song, Danny Gook. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> that, that command to love people as Christians, our mandate, um, isn't to the extent by which we can just give them the gospel. Um, right. Meaning that you loving your neighbor is, is the end goal. Right. It's it's not. I'm going to love them up until I give the gospel. They refuse it, and I stop. Uh, it's, sure. It's not. I mean, our our mandate is to give you the give people the gospel. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's good news. Yeah. People that people need. But, if, but it's also go the second mile with them, and it's also give them your not coat. just your coat, but give them your cloak too. It, yeah. It's, it's, there's more to it than just ab- absolutely an introduction. Be, a, to be a good neighbor for the sake of being a good neighbor. Yeah. You know, and so yeah care more about somebody else than you do about yourself you know uh, yeah care, uh, care more about everybody else than you do about yourself you know uh, yeah I, how you love a country's food more than its people um Oof. Uh, <laughs> it's not a Maurice Atkins original shout out KB um you know but uh it's uh <laughs> you know but yeah as 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 we wrap man I I just want to thank you uh so much for for being on uh maybe this is the start of a yeah of a of a new thing and where we can like I said maybe next time Maybe you interview me. Maybe you. Uh, maybe we just start with our intersection. Yeah, and uh, I know something that you mentioned before is maybe we can just get folks to ask questions, and then we can just answer those questions. Yeah, yeah. Let's 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 do that. So if you guys are listening to us right now, if you guys know us, if you guys live life with us, <laughs> or if you don't, or if you don't, <laughs> you have no clue who these individuals are. Um, you know, ask us some questions. Post them on. Write a review on the podcast. Uh, there's a Facebook page that maybe you can help me create some of that. Uh, help me build, build this page a little bit. Uh, on Facebook, it's just Collective Journal. Um, send us questions however you think you can communicate with us. So, uh, uh, But understand, though, there might be questions where you just choose not to answer because they may be personal. They may, they may just be Absolutely. You know, and, uh, but we will, uh, we will use our discretion, obviously. But, uh, yeah, please, guys, if you guys have, have any questions, please send them in. Until next time. I'm Maurice Atkins. And I'm Pastor Chris Allen. (laughs) There he is. And we'll catch you guys next time. God bless you.